You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to welcome all of the new listeners to SpyCast. We hope you'll like what you hear and stick around as we continue to try to bring you the best intelligence and national security podcast available. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, take a second to review us on iTunes. We take these reviews seriously, and we're always looking for ways to improve the podcast or to know if we should keep doing what we are doing if we are doing it well. We're also determined to keep bringing SpyCast to you for free. And so we've teamed up with some great companies who are helping make this happen. This week, we welcome back Mac Weldon, and thank them for their continued support of the podcast. And we are happy to welcome a new sponsor to the SpyCast family, Zip Recruiter. Thank you to both of these awesome companies, and you'll hear more about them shortly. But first, let's meet our guest. We're joined today by Kofor Black, who's a former CIA operations officer who served six foreign tours and field management positions. He worked throughout Africa in places like Zambia, Somalia, South Africa, and Zaire. In 1993, he moved to Sudan, where he served as CIA station chief until 1995, when he was named the Task Force Chief in the Near East and South Asia Division. From June of 98 through June of 99, he served as a Deputy Chief of the Latin American Division. In June of 1999, CIA Director George Tenet named Cobra Black the Director of the CIA's Counterterrorist Center, where he served until 2002. This is when he became the U.S. Department of State's Ambassador-at-Large for Counterterrorism. He held this position until November 2004, when he ended his extraordinary career in government. Thank you, Kofor Black, for taking the time to talk to us on SpyCast. It's a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So a question I ask the former practitioners, usually across the boards, we do have a lot of people out there who are students, who are grad students, thinking about a career in intelligence, is why did you make the decision to go into CIA? There's obviously a lot of opportunities elsewhere. What drove you to the CIA in the first place? Well, you have to remember um, when I was essentially graduating from college in the very early 70s, that was still the active Cold War period. Um, we were facing things such as mass annihilation and all the intelligence and assessments of the current day reflecting back on that period. Um, this country in a full exchange would have been a wasteland. Uh, I thought it was, um, would be an excellent way to spend one's life trying to prevent such an event ever happening. And you had various options. I actually thought about being in the, in the Air Force, but you know, being on alert in a B-52, waiting for the thing that you feared to happen, was um, not exactly my ideal. I thought it'd be, um, uh, you know, the best way I could serve not only the United States but also um, the planet would be to be an intelligence officer and collect intelligence that, when provided to decision makers, would help them, hopefully, to make the best decision possible. What was then a very dangerous world, where the price of failure was absolute uh, annihilation. That's a really interesting segue to my next question was, at the time you shifted over to counterterrorism, it wasn't like it is today where it's almost a natural path to upper management. What led you to move into the field of counterterrorism? Because, you know, you're now considered one of the world's most renowned experts on this, and you certainly were at the time you had the CTC, but it wasn't necessarily the sexy career path for people within CIA at the time you shifted over to CT. Well, first of all, um, my specialty is in, in intelligence operations, espionage, spying, stealing secrets. And that's what uh, I spent uh, my time trying to hone my craft doing that securely, effectively, and well. Um, I particularly was interested in Africa for a lot of personal reasons. 
So I spent a majority of my early career in Africa, which is the best incubator to learn your trade. Um, you have countries in, uh, in crisis. You uh, have situations of tremendous ambiguity. Uh, you have to be very agile, think on the spot. And in places like that, um, uh, authorities push down to a lower level than you might find in other more well-developed mm -hmm. places on Earth. We used to have a joke that you don't want to go to a place that has an opera or a subway system. <laughs> okay? So I sort of specialized in, in that for a while. Um, so that was the trend I was on. There were various aspects of this paramilitary and espionage, uh, espionage some counterterrorism as I went along. But what sort of in, um, you know, deflected me more and more into the counterterrorism field, while I was, whereas I had done some, was my assignment in Khartoum, Sudan. In those days, that was the way I described the Super Bowl of counterterrorism. Mm -hmm. We had every terrorist group. They were there in legion. We were few. They were many. It was the perfect place for an intelligence officer, and I think certainly for the size of our force, we did very well. These were extremely well-trained people. And we were, um, I think, very successful. We spent uh, some of our time with these terrorist groups focusing on uh, um, Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and all that. So a lot of the initial information that we have on um, him and them was collected by my folk and I in Khartoum. So with that, um, and there are some noteworthy events that have been made public, right. I sort of, sort of went off on this track a little bit uh, and continued on, except for the one year where I was deputy chief the Latin American division, in my case, it was more to, I think, um, a vetting process and a training process to, to fulfill that, um, that function, which is largely administrative. It's like used to when that. a military officer does staff work at some point on their way. Think of the it agenda. like yeah. that in my case. And my, yeah. my grand success was to, when I chaired staff meetings, was to get all the officers Latin American division to stop speaking Spanish and speak English <laughs> so I could understand them. So there's an element to that. So uh, and then from there I went, of course, into the counterterrorism center and then it was you know, the full-time ride. Yeah. During the time uh, in Sudan, and um, you mentioned a lot of interesting things happened, but there's two that I want to talk about very quickly just to give mm -hmm. the audience an idea of your time there. Uh, th you said you, this is really one of your first experiences with bin Laden and it was so much to the point you did such a good job that I, he tried to assassinate you while you were there. At least his people did. Yes. Uh, I mean, as far as I'm aware, he, didn't, he, he was personally not there, yeah. but his people definitely were. And he didn't live too far away. Yeah. Um, again, our mission there was to collect intelligence. It was to collect and not take action. People watch too many movies. Right. You know? I mean, our job was to get information. We'd write reports and send that home. Uh, of course, we had to... We had to uh, um, exhibit very um, extreme case of security awareness and precautions and preparations if something went bad. That having been put aside, it was the collection of information. And um, I believe that we were sufficiently successful at that, as well as some events that um, happened during that time period. One notably was the, um, the location, the finding and fixing and rendition of uh, the then most wanted international terrorists. Ilich Ramirez Sanchez, Carlos the Jackal, right. who that sent um, uh, real reverberations around the terrorist community in Khartoum, the thinking being that, gee, you know, if someone like this can be spirited off from our midst, and um, there was a collusion between um, the French government and the Sudanese government on this issue. What is their status? So, right. and um, anyway, in this mix, uh, the uh, the Americans um, and uh, myself and our people were seen as a threat, and so they wanted to um, um, dissuade us from being aggressive. Right. You know, which um, <laughs> uh, might work in some places. It definitely didn't work with us. Right. You know, I mean, we, um, we were 24-7 doing this. This was our job. We were really good at it. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's just, you know, like they were good, but they weren't good enough. But basically, they were, um, they were training and practicing for an activity against me. And uh, it was fascinating to watch. We loved doing this, right? We're right. intelligence officers. We collect information. So, you know, keep, keep tracking it and tracking it and collecting information, the people and how they're doing it, how they're positioned, what they're going to do. And then, uh, then we, we finally decided they were getting too close and that we should probably do something about it before something unfortunate happened. And from that point, it degraded into, 
you know, high-speed chases and the like, but the, um, the, um, the idea was to um, assassinate or blow up one of the two, yeah. How much at this point was bin Laden and al-Qaeda on your radar? I mean, you, you knew who they were back in yeah, the ac- Afghan war. Yeah, but... Actually, quite a bit. Okay. You know, and um, uh, this is a great opportunity to give a little bit of insight. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Google is great, but there are a lot of people saying uh, a lot of things are inaccurate, and then people repeat it. Absolutely. So I feel um, it's unfortunate for the interested reader. Sometimes they get a little, little bit um, astray. But no, we were very actively uh, involved in that. I would say in that time... The number one priority is set by the State Department um, for collection in that era was Hezbollah, right? Because 1983 they'd killed the Marines, and the, uh, so Hezbollah had killed more Americans than anybody else. So for that very reason, they were number two, and Al Qaeda was a bit lower. But even with that, um, we spent uh, a significant amount of uh, effort, resources, and time um, collecting on. Um, Al-Qaeda, um, certainly in Khartoum, other people elsewhere were doing it, uh, but we had the uh, we, we had such a target-rich environment, our effort was very productive, and we were interested in everything, right. everything the guy did. I mean, he had commercial companies, he had earth movers, he had training camps, and, you know, um, but the thinking at the time then was, or the national estimate was, that uh, he was more a financier than anything else. Well, you know, when you conduct uh, uh, um, assassination attempts and moving up against that, there's a little bit more in the financier in my book. But this held right. this held sway, and it's a whole different subject to talk about. But um, um, our our collection was uh, comprehensive, and we we had a very good idea of what we could do. Sorry, you were, you were talking about you know collecting against Bin Laden. I, I'm wondering, even if you had known exactly where he was even if you had known that he was a little bit more than a financier did you have the authority at the time to do anything about it well vince i mean i use language if we knew where he was vince this is the central intelligence agency (laughs) we knew where he was we knew where his people were and we we had a pretty um we're able to produce pretty comprehensive information on this um but again our mission at that time and certainly before 9-11 was to collect um, intelligence is not to take action um, against them, and so so that's the mode we were in: collect information and pass it along. You, you you took over the counterterrorism center essentially in between the attacks on the African embassies in 1998 and the bombing of the U.S.'s coal, the attack on the U.S.'s coal in 2000. And I read your your congressional testimony you gave after 9/11, yeah. uh, where you talked about. But you've already mentioned a little bit that Al-Qaeda was not necessarily a principal counterterrorism target in the early and mid-90s about Hezbollah and other things. Did the embassy bombings begin to change our perception about the dangers behind Al-Qaeda and bin Laden? Or was it the coal? Or was it even 9-11 that finally changed things? And maybe that's a too open-ended question. Let me kind of bring this back. Was there a disconnect between the CTC and policymakers about when bin Laden became... You know, well, that's easier to answer. That's a really way. To yeah, that's yeah. that. That's absolutely true. There was a tremendous disconnect, um, and I don't think it will surprise anyone in your audience that those who are closest to the flame feel the heat. So, if your job is twenty-four-seven to um, collect intelligence and, and and write assessments on Al Qaeda, you have the, all the information before you, and this is all you do. Mm-hmm. Then you have a probably pretty uh, more exacting view. And you're more emotionally engaged in this. So, and I think the farther away from that one is, the more it becomes disparate, removed, not as important, particularly when competing against other priorities. Right. Right. I mean, you have to remember that the the, uh, the policymakers are responsible for a lot of things. So, um, the threat represented by Al Qaeda was faithfully passed on and briefed. Uh, and, and it was in an escalatory nature towards 9-11, increasing sort of like a hockey stick after a while. Um, but one of the, I've never hear, heard it put this way actually, but um, in the end an intelligence officer has to change the thinking of the policymaker. 
I don't think they ever taught me this. In, yeah, in, no, that's uh, not in, something you in really school. Know, yeah. Okay, so in the end, you can collect all the great intelligence that you, that, that you can, and you analyze it. You write an assessment, and you give it to the policymakers. But if it does not change their thinking, one can make an argument. It's almost a waste of time. Yeah. Right. So the ability to change someone's thinking depend upon the quality of the information, how it's presented, and how essentially how convincing you are. But it's it can be a hard sell right. when the recipient, the policymaker, really has no personal experience with terrorism or this new terrorist threat, where they're seized with other issues. Perhaps they've come into the administration has just recently arrived, and, and they have other priorities. So. Um, it's kind of a seesaw, right? And you have to do the best you can, and sometimes you make it, and sometimes you don't. Well, I do have to say, after researching this, uh, and I've done it for a while, but even more so looking at some of your congressional testimony, I I'm very impressed by the extraordinary work you did. It's going to sound like I'm plaguing. I'm not. I'm not pandering because of the fact that you did so much with so few. I mean, the, the personnel or lack of personnel resources that the CTC had was pretty extraordinary before 9-11. You're talking about three infantry companies worth yeah. of personnel. It, it, it's, it's at the time, um, I was surprised when I first came to CTC and see what we had to work with. I mean, the, that language was cleared by the agency for the hearings mm -hmm. because the numbers are secret, right. and they're probably still secret today, yeah. I don't know. But you know, it conveys, and you can do a little math, and you can figure out roughly how, um, how many that would be. That also includes people that are not directly collecting and analyzing, right? That includes people that provide physical security and provide technical support and logisticians. So in this mix, sort of like, a, like, like an army unit, right. you've got all kinds of folk that are supporting the people who go forward in, in the uh, combat arms. So you had, you had that factor. But my favorite little, little, little fact that I... Uh, that I um, it means something to me to give you some perspective. The um, the Al Qaeda unit was one that very quickly, when I came to CTC, was sort of my first priority, and uh, we gave them everything we could. We took personnel from other components in CTC and gave them to. But it's all a big stretch, it's like a balloon. You give from one, right. you take from another. You know, there is the there is a finite nature to how much, how flexible you can be. And um, they did a, they did just a tremendous job. I mean, honestly, I, I just am in awe of how hard they worked and how efficiently they worked and um, the contribution that they made. But to put it in perspective, and this is so American, um, the number of personnel that we had in the uh, Osama bin Laden unit doing Al Qaeda, and the amount of resources we had, money to mm -hmm. do operations worldwide, was less in the number of staff personnel in the 9-11 Commission and the money allocated for that staff in the 9-11 Commission. This is a great country, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I, I, <laughs> there's things like this. I've never, but there are a lot of things like this. Right. And, you know, it just so happened this, you know, this issue really matured very quickly and came out. You know, history would have been completely different yeah. if there had been a naval shootout in the South China Sea or something. You know, uh, so... Um, you have to choose wisely, but we did, we did um, um, vocally, I think, and effectively try and call attention to right. this this threat. It was just a little ahead of its time. Well, I, it, it's in the beginning of 2001, you really began to warn the powers that be that an attack on the United States might be coming soon. Because there have been others who are saying right. Al Qaeda is going to be attacking other places around the world, but you really started focusing attention on here within the United States right. during this time. And now we know uh, through some declassification that there's a lot of different what, multi source collection that led to this from communications intercepts to uh, human intelligence to other intelligence that's showing that Al Qaeda was determined to Correct. Attack I mean, it's, it's, it's all true. You can, um, uh, there's a number of this, you know, documentary um, information, it's at least references to it out on the internet, mm -hmm. and you can find that. But one of the things that people really don't appreciate, and not too much of an issue has been made, is the human dynamic here. The number of times that we personally mm -hmm. would go to the Hill and brief senior U.S. government officials throughout this entire period, oversight committees, cabinet members, you know. Uh, I began to think that was a key element of my job I was doing it so much. Um, 
it was um, it was um, comprehensive. It was done over a long period of time, and um, we can talk about the impact of this. But um, yeah, no, it was it was very real to us, and we attempted to make it as real as we possibly could to um, our leadership that was going to make the decisions. I mean, George Tenet's taken some grief for stuff, but it's pretty clear to me from reading everything I've read that you and he seem to be on pretty much the same page when it came to the threat from al-Qaeda. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, he, um, he understood it. Uh, he advanced it. He made a, a public declaration, at least the CIA workforce, saying that we're at war. Um, so he understood the threat. And then as we entered the summer of 2001 and during the summer of 2001, um, you know, in meetings with him, he c clearly um, indicated he understood it, which you know culminated in uh, you know going to the White House for a non-scheduled meeting. But there was a lot going up to this point. I mean, for us, this was not some kind of a mystery, you know. Right. Like, what's going to happen? We knew it was going to happen. Right. You know, we just didn't have the details that would um, be sufficient, you know, for the law enforcement to go out and do. Right to directly counter it. But if you came up with the same threat posture in this same briefing, and this time, you'd have F-15s over the Capitol and it'd be locked down. And so it's a different time, right, absolutely. a different perspective. Yeah, as historians, in historical hindsight, it's very easy to say, like, how did you miss the, like, the August warning? You know, we, Barbara Sood, you know, was a primary author of the Bin Laden determined to attack in the United States. Right. August briefing, you like, it talks about New York and Washington and hijacking yeah. planes, and you're like, "How did you miss this?" Well, with this, I mean, I've spent now 15 years sort of thinking about this now and again. For us, it's a it's very hard work, working around the clock. You put it together, and you have confidence, and you go forward with it. But for your customers who aren't steeped in this type of thing, um, it actually turns out to be very difficult for them to accept because it represents significant change. It represents allocation of resources. They're gonna to have to tell the press, well, how come we're curtailing aircraft? Right. We're putting, you know, the lines at the airports are longer. You know, these people vote. So you have all of this mix that the policymakers have to, um, have to deal with. But also, when it goes bad, right. you know, they're not the ones answering, you are. And you're, you're incredibly hamstrung by what you could do, but I thought it was very interesting to see how much you still tried to, for lack of a better word, pre-position assets uh, beforehand, whether it was fighting to get Predator's drone armed with Hellfire missiles, which was not agreed to until, what, a week before 9-11, I believe, was when they finally had a plan to do that. Um, you, you had uh, CIA assets near Afghanistan, around Afghanistan. I guess that's one of the big reasons that we were able to respond so quickly after the fact is because a lot of your thinking and others was eventually we're going to have these assets and we're going to be able to use them so let's get them ready. Am right. I putting words in your mouth? or No, I would just say about this uh, this um, reported armed predator thing, it's the policy of the CIA that they neither confirm nor deny. Right. So I obviously have nothing to add about that, but what, but actually some people put in articles in a disparaging way you know, I, I said to a couple of people and someone put it in a book that you know, what we're doing now before 9-11 is preparing for World War III. From a counterterrorism standpoint, that's exactly what we were doing. Mm -hmm. We were preparing for when this thing goes bad, which we know is going to happen. Right. And we're going to be ready to get off the dime and do our job, uh, likely in an environment where there are um, enhanced authorities and resources. So um, not only trying to move the needle in a positive direction, we're also looking for an eye towards the future where in certain places of the world we need airlift, we need the right type of uh, operational personnel with ethnicity and languages. Right. And so there, there are a lot of pieces of this, and as you, as you might imagine, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable being unable to recall what's overt and what's well, not absolutely. You know, yeah. for, for your uh, podcast. But I'll just say that as much as we could with the number of people that we had, we, and um, we tried to build up the ability so that... We could be there firstest with the mostest. We could um, set the stage to make this an unfair fight for the U.S. military. And the purpose of that was to give 
distance and time for U.S. policymakers to come to grip with this and come up with a with with a plan, a national plan. Right. So, you know, there's an element of uh, not even clairvoyance. It's just naturally following the intelligence picture that you've developed. So when when 9/11 happened, um, the the closer you are to the fire, if you're in the, in the uh, Al Qaeda section in CTC, you know. Yes. Right. Yeah. You, know, you have to keep yourself from saying, I told you so. Yeah. But here we go, right? Right. You, you can immediately accept it. We told you this is going to happen. So you can immediately accept it. You've been sort of planning for it. So you can do something about it. Other people weren't as fortunate. Even if you get outside into the larger CTC, there was, there was a greater, I think, um, emotional response. And then you get outside the CIA, even greater. And outside the CIA, it was, you know, people were numb. So, since we were prepared, we could accept it quickly, we could deal with it, and we could move out. Well, if you look at the military, have been planning for a nuclear exchange with the Soviets during the Cold War for 40 years. We've been planning to fight conventional wars for 100 years. Right. And this is an entirely different type of war, and at least someone had been thinking about how to fight it. Which well, is it was probably, you know, I'm an American. You know, I'm not, you know, American first, CIA guy second. But, um, you know, as an American, this is not such an unusual situation. You know, when we look at the United States military, we look at it to protect us from the worst things possible. We talked a little bit earlier about a nuclear exchange with a, a pure state. You know, that's their job, to deter things like that. If there's a conventional fight, you know, a desert storm. Right. Getting all the equipment there, the tanks, and I mean, it's just it's, it's brilliant. You know, that's their first job. And um, in that time frame leading up, our first job in the Counterterrorism Center was exactly this. So with our resources, we could move forward enough to kind of hold the position and allow them to retool and come in. The U.S. military had no war plan for Afghanistan from their standpoint for a good reason, because this was seen as a law enforcement issue. Right. You ask the FBI, and they're a whole different cat now. <laughs> but then they were all about rules and regulations and making cases and providing the evidence to prosecutors and going to court. This is not where the CTC comes from, okay? Right. We're in the preemptive, you know, over the horizon, identify it so that it can be countered, so innocent men, women, and children can be protected. And if people like smile, it sounds kind of corny and noble. No, that's the real mission, right. you know, to deter, to disrupt and defeat terrorists so that they don't hurt innocent people. That's, that's what the whole game's about. And so, you know, the military, you know, those days, couldn't be expected to cover everything all the time. And so now they have the shift. Now we have JSOC, the envy of the world. So they've, they've made the shift right. pretty well. And uh, they're extremely capable, I think, if something were, God forbid, like this to happen again. You'd have a different response. Right. You'd have a military-led jack-in-the-box, here we come, as opposed to um, the Central Intelligence Agency with what eventually deployed uh, 110 Officers, which is the size of a U.S. infantry company. Right. I mean, if you said the, if you said the U.S. military, once you go against the country, make all the Taliban cities fall, you know, with 110 guys, which were reinforced by 300 plus military special operators. I mean, they're the big stick. Make no right. no bones about it. And on top of this, was the, the people would say this is not an invasion. This was coming to the aid of people that were prepared to fight for their own liberty. Right. And that's kind of what the CIA does, you know. It's not we don't we we help others. We assist. It was a paramilitary action versus a military yes, action. Yes, it was. First and foremost. That's correct. I'd like to take two minutes to talk to you about Mack Weldon, a company that is reinventing men's basics with smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I want to tell you more about their Vesper Polo, a perfect product for Spycast fans. The Vesper Polo has designs inspired by James Bond. It has advanced fabrics and a collar that will always keep its shape. And this polo is unlike any other. The Vesper polo is even named after the company's favorite Bond girl from Casino Royale, Vesper Lind. And by the way, I still don't see the Dr. Holly Goodhead turtleneck on the Max Weldon website. Come on, boys. Let's get with it. All jokes aside, the 007-inspired Vesper polo is a timeless icon of style, sophistication, and calm under pressure. Mac Weldon developed a lightweight knit fabric using micro mesh for enhanced breathability. The cotton is combed to create finer threads for a smooth, refined look, 
and the mesh construction simply keeps you cool no matter who or what you're chasing this summer, which doesn't seem to ever want to end. And when it finally does cool off a bit, God willing, there's nothing better than the Mack Weldon Ace Hoodie and Pant. Made for life beyond the 9 to 5, the Ace Hoodie and Pant were designed with a refined fit, super soft French terry, and details that go the extra mile. They were made to be worn everywhere. And of course, Mack Weldon will always have on the try-on guarantee, hassle-free returns, and free shipping on orders over $50. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. That's MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. I'm glad you brought up the FBI because I think there's a, a lot of serious misconception about prior to 9-11, these agencies not having the ability to work together. I think, you know, the 9-11 commission and just kind of the the urban, or that, I was going to say urban leds, looks like conventional wisdom seems to be that no one was talking to anybody before 9-11, but the CTC seemed to have a pretty good relationship. Well, it's not only only that, it, um, I've heard, I've heard influential senators state this as a fact. As we all know, the FBI doesn't talk to the CIA, and the CIA doesn't talk to the FBI. Well, there's always room for improvement, that's for sure. Right. But, you know, the the fundamental principle from certainly the CIA end and the CTC end is, this is what we do. It's really complicated. Your audience probably wants to get out a pen and paper and write this down. We collect information, right? We analyze it, and then we give it to our customers. <laughs> In this case, it would be the FBI. This is our job, right? Okay, so I mean, we're, that that's what we do. Now, do we get it there quickly enough? Do we get it all of it there to the right place? You know, you can, you can, uh, you can argue about that. I'm not saying we do it perfectly, but we we do it, you know, the best we can. Also, in those days, we didn't have a common computer system, mm. so um, we had what some some comedian described called the the hostage exchange, where we had a senior CTC officer right. go to the FBI and senior FBI officer coming out. I had a great one, Ed Worthington. And so um, if you want to get something there lickety-split, it wasn't very lickety-split because he had a CIA computer and an FBI right. computer and you had all this. We had, uh, I forget the number, I think um, six FBI personnel in the uh, Al-Qaeda unit. So, you know, w- what human beings can do, they were, they were trying to do as much as they could um, but there's no accounting for um, the lack of an efficient um, communications highway to get all the stuff that you would like there. So let's be perfectly honest, there are also sometimes you come up with, per- I've always had a great relationship with the FBI. I mean, they're great guys. Some people, you know, have not, mm-hmm. and, and vice versa. So, you know, that can slow up a real equitable exchange. Right. But that's a human condition. The Congress can't pass any law that says you've got to love this person no matter what. You know, but well, they can try. I mean, they can. But they, they, <laughs> well, they can. In yeah, fact, sure. now I expect they will. Right. But it still will work. Okay. <laughs> let me let me bring us up to immediately before nine eleven. Was I? I want. I think a lot of people wonder in the days leading up to. I mean, talking about on nine eight nine 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 ten. Mm-hmm. Was there any warning intelligence? Any. Did Al-Qaeda go dark? Did it frighten you? Were things different than what you had been seeing throughout the summer? Well, there, there was a lot. But when you said 9, 8, 9, 9, 9, 10, I don't recall anything specifically confined to those three days that we hadn't seen before. It wasn't a continuation of indications and warning. But there, um, Al-Qaeda's behavior clearly to us, and this was identified months before, it was one of the prime motivers of our repeated briefings to senior officials, including the, to the White House. That was a very important one on uh, July the 10th. Was that was the was the pattern of actions when contrasted with the intelligence that we were collecting, right. human and technical, and then watching what they do, and it was basically like scattering, you know, various forms of that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you um, if you're the um, if you're the FBI and you see uh, a Pierce State Enemies Embassy in Washington D.C., all of a sudden, with no warning, they all empty out, get on their plane, and go back to their capital with all their files on fire. In the FBI, they call this a clue. Okay, yeah. <laughs> this is not good. Okay, so we're seeing a lot of things like that. Right. You know, and so go forward with that. You know something's coming. 
We know their, their objective was the destruction of the United States. We had a lot of um, human and technical intelligence saying that um, they're expecting a great multiple operations. And so, you know, there was, there was an awful lot there. And it was, it was coming, and, and my people knew it. And there's a there's a there's a favorite someone picked up. You know, ever usually these things come out. But I remember that we had a staff meeting in the morning where all of my lieutenants were there. I had a very good relationship with these people. You know, a situation like this, and we'd worked before. They're just you know great officers, and they did a fantastic job before and after. And I remember that the meeting started, and we were going along in, in my office, and one of them said. Um, you know, Chief, we've been thinking. This is kind of like the captain on the ship before the mutiny, you know. <laughs> uh, sir, I've been talking to the crew, and uh, uh, said, yeah, well, thinking's good. Yeah. So so what? And he, he said, well, we were just thinking we're going to really get struck bad. Uh, you know, lots of people are going to die. Uh, we're, of course, going to get blamed. Who else is there? Right. There's no one else on this block. Right. We're the only ones you know, doing this. Right? So it's like soccer. If you, you, you don't get a red card unless you're playing, right? We're the only ones who go. Right. So their clever idea, of course, they were smiling and they weren't serious. But you know, in, in these things, there's a, an underlayment of honesty to it. They said, you know, we've all been here more than two years. We should all put in for a transfer and get out <laughs> while the getting's good and let a new team come right. in. So I, knew, I really knew they weren't serious, but I sort of had to play like it serious as well, first practically. We can't find people to replace you in such a short period of time, practically. But the other thing, I mean, you have to look at it. Who better than us to ride this down? Yeah. I mean, th so this is validation of you know, this is coming. We've been in this job. We we know what we're doing, certainly more than anyone else. Right. And when the country is struck, they're going to want, you know, the Central Intelligence uh, Agency up and going forward fast, and we can do that. And uh, so that's what we should do. And they're all absolutely. But there was a, there was an appreciation. This was this is not the sort of you know like everyone you know surprised and you know where were they? Right? That wasn't our experience. Right. Ours was very different. Yeah, no, I mean I can't. I, it's it's the uh, the Greek. I was the Greek one that knows what's coming in the future. Cassandra. It's yeah. very much the Cassandra. Well, you all know it's coming. Nobody else does. You're warning everybody about right. it, but no but one's listening, listening to you. So you prepare. You do it as best you can mm -hmm. to convince. Them. But then, as you go on, we spent quite a while preparing. So this, this comparatively micro force, right, compared to DoD, could do its job, and step up and go forward and be kind of the tip of the spear, until you know the mass of the United States could come behind right. it and buy time for our decision makers. So let's look at the day of, because I, I think that there's a lot of people out there who who want to kind of as much as you can to bring us into. Sure. The CTC. You were there on the morning of 9/11. When the first plane hit, were you getting the same reports everybody else was that it was a prop plane, an accident, something, just oops, you know, on a day when there shouldn't have been any oops because it was perfectly clear. And, and or did you know? Yeah, it's interesting. It's always kind of like when I was a boy. I guess I was 13. Was the day that President Kennedy was shot. And for my generation, it's where were you when President Kennedy shot? Perhaps for yours, it's more like, where were you at 9-11, what were you doing? And I don't remember anything up until the first plane going into the tower. And it started with my office manager coming into my office and say, hey, you know, call for a, uh, a private aircraft flew into one of the twin towers. And so on the TV screen, I had a TV sort of on the wall near the ceiling, kind of on, mm -hmm. fluctuating CNN, Canadian TV, BBC, you know, kind of rotating through so <clears throat> I looked up in this little black hole, and being a former pilot, private pilot, I thought, Jesus, this guy must be the world's worst <laughs> pilot. And this beautiful blue sky, clear visibility. I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, how could you, you know? I, but I have other things to think about, right? right? So we didn't pay much attention to it. And, and interestingly enough, um, at that time, the former, uh, former captain of the USS Cole um, Commander Leopold um, came by to to pay a courtesy call because we had uh, my, um, my my operations chief Hank Crumpton and some of the guys when the coal was struck immediately went out to the ship to facilitate their interaction with the Yemenis and mm -hmm. facilitate the introduction of the 
FBI special agents in the country and so they got to know each other. So he was up seeing somebody else in the agency and so he has to come by and see me, sort of impromptu, to say hey thanks for, you know, your guys and helping us out and all that. So we were sitting there and chatting and, and uh, my phone rang and it was a guy that I knew from the Angola War. He's a real expert on paramilitary things and rockets and planes and and it was um, on a outside commercial line, which I don't get any calls on mm -hmm. that. people trying to sell insurance right. and stuff. You know, the <laughs> so the phone rings. This, so hit it, and the guy identifies himself, and I knew him very well. And he said, uh, "Hey, chief, I'm up in New York. We we have a problem." I said, "Okay, what's the problem?" He said, "I was watching the 737-like civilian airliner fly into the tower." Hmm. Well, well, now the hairs started to go back right. on my neck now because I thought it was, you know. A, uh, like a Cessna, a Cessna 172 or something, right. and now we're going to a 737-like commercial, 737-like commercial airliner. And he said the problem was I was watching. He said I was watching the control surfaces on the aircraft, and the pilot flew the plane into the tower. Wow. And then he used an expletive deleted, and said, "We've been struck." Who's in the other tower? I'm evacuating my position. So, hung up the phone. I knew, I knew in my heart, exactly where we were. That right. this was the start. So I said to um, to Commander Leopold, I said, "You know, it's very nice to meet you, and we have to cut this short because we have to go to war now." Hmm. And you know, I get that kind of look like I'm so glad I'm not you. Right. And so off we went and began our day, and immediately went up to the seventh floor and. There was a room full of people, and uh, uh, the CIA director George Senate was there, and I came in, and you know, the crowd kind of parted. And there was an empty chair for me. When it's bad, <laughs> you don't have to find your way yeah. to that chair, okay? They're all they're, they're, they're happy to have you. Yeah. It's human human nature. So we sat down, but then, not unsurprisingly, the security people rushed in. And, they said, oh, we have to move. This is no good. Cause we yeah, there's 3,000 planes still in the air at that point. Well, yeah, but we had had threat right? intelligence, yeah. you know, collected previously, that they wanted to fly planes in the CIA headquarters. Yes. So they said, no, we can't do that because, you know, plane flies, the you know, building will collapse. All you people will die. We've got to move. So we moved downstairs to the, the ground floor conference room down there. And then we started, we sat down, and they decided that, well, what wasn't good for the seventh floor isn't going to be good on the ground floor. We're going to get crushed by the rubble. So they go, you know. So we went to an outbuilding and we started uh, our our day there. Well, and you 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 never left. I mean, th this is something where you were asked to leave, and you you stayed at the yeah, helm of I mean, the CTC at this point. Yeah, there's a lot of conflicting uh, in the the, um, the building we were in. You know, the TVs were going. There were reports of there was you know plane had flown in the State Department, a bomb had gone off, and there are various phone calls, uh, underway conference calls and whatnot, and and, and, it, and it was prudent at the time. The, um, the director said, "Okay, we're gonna have to evacuate the headquarters building, the compound." And so, it's well, CTC needs an exemption because all our computers are here. We have a role to play in a crisis like this. And said, well, they could die. I said, "Well, then we'll just have to die." Yeah. And he goes, "Okay." And so, as correctly, the workforce were coming out, the building was going back in, and all all the CTC people that I dealt with were were all there, you know, manning their their positions. They knew what their duty was, and so our initial task then was to figure out um, what happened, right? Who did it? What's next? Well, I was going to ask you: When did the attitude switch from a protective footing, making sure there were no further attacks? to an offensive war footing, let's go get the bad guys. Um, yeah, how do I characterize this? It was it was simultaneous. Okay. That's what this job yeah. really became so interesting so very fast because you had, you know, a constellation of things you all had to do right now. So everyone was sort of triaging. And what made it work was the quality of the workforce, the lieutenants that I knew very good, we'd work together. You know, we, we didn't have to have meetings. Uh, information was exchanged in phrases. We all knew what each other meant. And um, so, you know, what happened, who did it, what's next? The next, what's next part goes on to this very day, doesn't it? Right. I mean, and so now you've got 
every friend we have on the planet, you know, communicating what they know. So now you have to you have to field all this information, looking for the nuggets that are useful. Right. So this took tr this took on tremendous proportions, which represented um, a, a huge increase in the numbers of personnel. We went from you know maybe three infantry companies to a brigade. Right. I mean, and this is very, as you know, from your military experience, to to absorb that many people that quickly in a crisis situation where everybody wants you. Congress wants you to brief them right now. I mean, right. White House, you, you have to just, I mean, it's like a, everyone has their job and they have to go out and do it. It's impossible just to be get out of my way and let me do my job because you're constantly. You're constantly, and then you have to triage everything because yeah. that guy's thing isn't working. So now you're going to have to reorder what you're doing right. to, to compensate for that. Well, and hist I'm sorry to historically, yeah. we know that when United 93 went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, that was basically the end of 9-11, but we had no idea. Well, no, no, in fact, we had, the, we had the other indication that this was not the end. That's what I was this saying. We thought there one. was going to be a 9-12, right. a 9-13, maybe well, WMDs. Sure. Well, we had, we had indications of that, but it's like the, it's like the Navy crews on the, the, the destroyers near Saipan in World War II, you know? The first wave of kamikazes, you go, geez, I hope that's it, yeah. you know? Well... What about the second wave and the third? And there was, we had a good reason to believe that. So you had that process, the, the whole what, what is next part. If you can figure out what's next ahead of time, you can preempt it, right? So if you have enough detail, turn it over to law enforcement, foreign security service, and they can deal with it. You know, you, your job is now done as right. much as you can. Try and collect more, but there you go. But at the same time while you're doing this, You've asked a very complicated question. I'm giving you a simplistic answer. Yeah, right. but Perfect. So that's, that's one main track. The other main track was um, early afternoon, um, uh, I was with George Tennant, and you know, we were exchanging information. What, what, I mean, it's, very, it's almost like uh, bees, you know, with their antenna. They come together briefly, blah, 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 yeah. and they move on. It was all like that. Yeah. You know, we've, we, we, this is our career. We know what we're doing. Right. We don't have to spend a lot of time. So what exactly do you mean by that, Chief? I mean, it's, all, it's like combat. Right. There's another point. In a situation like that, we're not bureaucrats, okay? Don't confuse us with a Washington bureaucracy. We're having to deal with the Washington bureaucracy as we gear up as a combat unit to go forward. There's no difference between these guys going forward and getting ready to do that as you would have at an army base sending forward special forces or infantry mm -hmm. company. I mean, same, same type of thing. So uh, early afternoon on September 11th was almost an aside. I remember being with George Tennant. I think we were in the hall, and he over his shoulder he said, uh, "Update the Afghan war plan, and update the worldwide attack matrix. Have it ready for opening business tomorrow." Mm. I mean, imagine all the stuff going on. Right. I don't know if you really can, <laughs> but it was like one of the you know you know to yourself. I said, I, "I shall never see something like this again. Right. I won't see it again, and 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 be in this uh, position." So. We did that, and the guys that did, that were specifically um, working on that was the head of the Al Qaeda unit, um, Rich Blee, and his deputy Hendrick. They worked it up. We went over it. Blah, blah, blah. We'd been working on this before, right? Preparation, right? It, you know, being prepared is very important because when you're prepared, you have a planning process, mm -hmm. you have a preparation base. So when you have to improvise, which which is the agency's really strong suit, being agile and improvising, you can do it with far greater effectiveness. You don't want to start improvising right out of the box if you can help. So um, we had this all, all done in the morning. And so on the 12th, uh, we first uh, briefed the director on both things. People always talk about the Afghan war plan, but the worldwide attack matrix, in my view, was arguably more complicated. Because I forget the number. You're talking about projection uh, operational capability in uh, 85 countries simultaneously, mm. you know, planes, trains, automobiles, people, kit, I mean, think about it, the things that would normally take weeks to approve with committees and everything right. are now like rolling, you know, you know, the gun tubes are coming out of the shelters left and right. I mean, it's, and it's all to their credit. I really can't take any for myself because, you know, most of the time I was just presented, hey, here, this is what we got, boom, it's good to me, good, go. Right. You know, like it was combat. You know, people don't. Yeah, you know, people really shouldn't think about that part of what we were doing as you know government bureaucracy. Right. You know, bureaucrats in seats eating 
donuts and long lunches. Yeah. This this is like the army. Right. You know, it's much more like that. Um, so um, when we briefed your attendant after we were all done, I remember saying, you know, in the worst case, we could lose as many to 40, 60 men killed or captured. This was eventually out of 110 people. And you know, to George Tennant's everlasting credit, he was chewing on his own cigar and thinking about it. His mind was going a million miles an hour. I was waiting, you know, what's it going to be? made his decision, took out his cigar, he said, okay, do it. Um, you know, the CIA is not like the military. I mean, we spend an inordinate amount of time and effort to protect one person's life. Right. Right. We're not used to casualties like this, even the potential of casualties like this. Uh, and so to make a, uh, a call like that was a gutsy one, and everyone from yeah. there on out, the president was, they all thought about it and said go so from that point on we were moving along you know the, the sacrifice of the agency has been extraordinary during the, the war on terror i mean if you go to langley if you get a chance to go listeners at some point and you the stars on the, the memorial wall and the book a lot of the names aren't in there but you can see how many people working for cia have lost their lives and other than vietnam basically you know it's that there's there's no time period that anyone comes anywhere close to the last 15 years. That's true, and I wish it was. I wish there was a, a short-term end to this. Yeah. There's a great organization called the CIA Officers Memorial Fund, where we raise monies to educate the children of yeah. officers that are that are lost overseas. And um, it really, um, for some reason, it really took me aback. I hadn't thought of it this way, but it really shocked me. I was out of the out of the Agency and I was in the private sector and trying to help raise your money for this thing. And, it's, and because of all of the gifts, we've been able to educate all of the children of these officers. You wow. know, if you can get in Princeton, we pay. Wow. You know, I mean, no questions asked. Is there a website that we, for that? Is it just Google it? Yeah, or? you can just Google it. Okay. It's called the CIA Officers Memorial Fund. Okay. And uh, you can, if and if your listeners are willing to contribute, that would be. That would really be great. We we owe it to these people to have their their children um, educated, and you know officers now serving take great comfort in that. You know a lot of these guys are just recently out of the seals or delta or out right. of college and whatnot, and they, they don't have a lot of money, and newly married, and uh, it's a great. They've said it's a great comfort to them that, that they have such a thing. But what I was going to tell you when I started this was, um, it really took me aback in when the. Uh, president of this told me, he said, well, <clears throat> you know, um, we're trying to collect as much money as we can because, you know, we actually have an estimated actuarial table anticipating wow. the number of young men and women working for the CIA that will, that will die serving their country from here on out and figure how many children they have and how much money we need to collect. And for me, that was such a sobering experience. That not only is it not over, we aren't even, I don't even know if we're at the end of the beginning. Right. This is going to go on for a bit. Yep. Let me ask you about um, <clears throat> the, the raid on Osama bin Laden, the, the, the Navy SEAL Team 6 raid at Abbottabad that finally took him out. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask you the trite question about how did it make you feel, though you're welcome to talk about that. I, did you have a hint before? Did you know about it? it was I know you were out of government at that point. It would have been kind of somewhat inappropriate to tell you, but... Off the record, of course, it's not off the record. But yeah, no, uh, no, I didn't. And from my standpoint, it's 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 not important. You know, I I had my day, and they have the new team doing that and that, and they did a great job. No, I didn't. And actually, I don't know anything about it, besides what I see on TV and yeah. how people write about it. You know, was that an end of an era for you? Did you feel catharsis? Did you did, was it just another day? No, yeah. it didn't. It didn't. It was just routine business the same way that in the first week of December when we went into a landlocked country that was the graveyard of empires, Afghanistan, within under nine weeks we were through all the Taliban cities. Yep. All Al-Qaeda was were killed, captured, running for the border, across the border. You know, that was not an inconsequential feat under the circumstances and how it was done. Neither I nor any of the people I work with 
There was no triumphalism. You wouldn't, even in hindsight, you'd think, wouldn't you? People go, you know, we really, you know, did good no, here, didn't we? On a ball of scotch there was champagne. nothing, no. nothing at all, because everybody knew this was not the end. Yeah. We we're just getting started. Right. So it was just, now we're, we're in this process, we're engaged, and um, we didn't have the luxury, certainly, to congratulate ourselves, to really ponder you know, how big a deal was that? This is our mission. Go in, take out Al-Qaeda so they don't hurt anybody else. So that's, you, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. It's not like a football game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cheering at There's the no end. There's no spike none, in the ball. None yeah. of that. None of that. None. Very serious. Let me tell you a little about the newest member of the SpyCast family, Zip Recruiter. This is a company that was founded by four guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized that the absolute worst thing about making it to the management level was the process of hiring people. We experience this all the time here at the museum. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the best people, and we do attract the best people. But the process seems never-ending, and it can take a huge amount of time, time we'd rather spend, you know, running a museum. The people at Zip Recruiter have the solution. They stand for simplicity, satisfaction, integrity, and you're not going to believe this coming from a jobs website, delight. Delighting their customers and partners is their daily passion. ZipRecruiter lives to exceed expectations of those who work with them. Surprising customers with unexpected excellence is not an every once in a while thing for them, but a daily habit. Delight is the emotion ZipRecruiter strives to create in every interaction. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first, F-I-R-S-T. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. So you're, you're, the people now that have come after you, the current CTC director has to deal with a world uh, somewhat more complicated with... Al-Qaeda splintering now into many, many different groups, whether it's AQAP or core Al-Qaeda, and then ISIS and a lot of Boko Haram, and those all existed before. As an outsider, but somebody with the kind of, you know, massive amounts of experience that you have, the war against ISIS seems to be going relatively well on the battlefield, right? They're being pushed back. But how, or what advice would you give to the current CTC or the current FBI or the NCTC or anybody about stopping things like these lone wolf attacks in Bernardino, Orlando, or stopping the next 9-11, or, I mean, I know you don't have classified information anymore, but just kind of, just based on what you see from your perspective, are things going well? Are things going badly? Are things in a position where uh, it's just more of the same? Mm. Well, you've, you've asked a lot of questions. I would just start kind of simplistically yeah. that... <clears throat> You know, um, I think 9-11 kicked off a new era for the United States. What uh, was a um, quick, um, quote, victory, unquote, in Afghanistan, as a result, in part, since I was responsible of, uh, you know, divine intervention. I do believe that. Um, the loss of life and the, and the success in time uh, was, was extraordinary. Um, but the policymakers chose to stay, uh, and with that come a lot of um, cascading issues. I don't remember that being the plan, to tell you the truth. Right. I remember the plan was, this is punitive, we go in, we take out Al-Qaeda, um, I recall the a discussion about a residual force being left, kind of like what they have now, uh, to do counterterrorism, to do some training, to play a counterterrorist role, and leave. Right. You know, a country with a, a 
um, such a low literacy rate and all that that would benefit from you know an international conference uh, investing money in their infrastructure and uh, moving on. I never known if this was the plan. No one ever told me, and I think I would have known since we came up with the plan. Right. So uh, it was not, as I said, uh, thing on TV once. It was not to assure that little girls could go to school. Right. It wasn't to assure that to set up a, a judicial. This is punitive. Go in there and take these guys out. Happy to accept their surrender, come out. But if they're determined to fight to the death, we aim to please. Wasn't that part was, of the that was the objective. So yeah. this this the, the, that changed into a prolonged struggle where we invested tremendous blood of our young people and money. And um, I just think it was um, it was a little too far, a little too far to go, in my view. And you got a dog in this fight. Your son fought he, in Afghanistan. He did. He was a uh, he was an airborne ranger, army officer. He did uh, two tours in the mountains of Afghanistan, and uh, they were when they weren't snowed in, fighting every day. Right. And um, I just don't um, I just don't see how that was necessary. Um, but we've actually begun from the wrong end. If you're asking, you know, if you make me king for a day, or, you know, if Hillary Clinton or Trump wanted to come up with an answer that made some sense in terms of counterterrorism, to me, it would have been, it would be that, you know, you have to project from the in out. And the, the greatest threat we have in the area of counterterrorism is to have our own ra our own population or those in our country radicalized. Right. That's bigger than anything else overseas. You know, foreign governments come and they go. And uh, what was the British said? There are no permanent f friends, just permanent interests. Well, we're responsible for ourselves first. Right. Take care of our own people. And you know, if you have a dollar, I'd spend most of it making sure that those individuals and communities. They're at risk of feeling isolated or are vulnerable to radicalization, that this be addressed. This is really, really important. And I hate to crow, and I'm sure you know this, but when I came to Counterterrorism Center, we actually plotted all this out when I first came in 1999. How's this going to go? And this is where we ended up. Yeah. We didn't have Iraq, that's for sure. Right. But yeah, most of it, we got just right to a T. And um, where it ended up was. Um, Self-radicalized Americans. We, we we euphemistically called it the California Garage Band effect. You know, three bubbas get together in a garage and they're learning how to play surfer music. They're they're preparing for a terrorist act because they've been radicalized. Right. They don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to train. They can go on the internet. Uh, so this is, I think, a greater threat to us in the field of counterterrorism than the, the deployment of legions overseas. I think if, uh, if if you the next most important thing is to deal with countries that have the the will to resist terrorism. They have if they have the will, help them with their capacity. Right. But it's pay to play, you know. Um, it's like the French when they came to help the help the Americans in their revolution. They weren't coming here for liberty and equality. They came here to make sure that the Americans would fight, and they could win. And once they knew that, they helped them. There should be a little bit of that. Your, uh, your, your yearning for freedom has got to be greater than my yearning for your freedom. Right. Okay? So, you know, all pigs are not equal in this deal, you know? Uh, maybe you're going to have to wait 50 years or 100 years and, you know, we'll come back to you. So there's that, there's that element. Um, working equitably, productively with um, those that see things the way we do. Uh, our traditional allies and those who haven't been our allies in the past because you wait long enough who knows they could be an ally in the future that's the second thing and the third thing would be you know this is a long-term game we can't fix everything at the same time and I think the idea that uh, fostering a democracy over all things overseas is seriously misguided right. I've never understood it and when I've talked to uh, those instances where I've had a kind of a frank conversation with leaders in the Middle East and some heads of state, you know, they really ask, do you, do you have any idea of what you're saying and the impact on the region? 
I think our ability, I think our objective should be stability, right? Democracy can come, but stability first. And lastly, any president that, that deploys American combat forces, American conventional combat infantry, there better be a gunfight. I don't want to hear any more talking about our men and women in uniform, Nation diplomats, yeah. right? Gunfight. Right. These young people are fit and they're trained for that. So if there's not going to be a gunfight and you can't identify who they're meant to fight, you should send JSOC to the CIA or the Los Angeles Police Department, somebody, but not our young fighting men and women until you've got an enemy. When you've got an enemy, they'll do just fine. It's got to be identified, got to be pretty clear cut. Is that kind of waffling in any of no, this? perfect. Okay. We'd like to thank our great sponsor, Mac Weldon, for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can get 20% off at MacWeldon.com by using the promo code SPYCAST. That's 20% off at MacWeldon.com by using the promo code SPYCAST. And we'd, again, like to welcome ZipRecruiter to the SPYCAST family. You can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com first. That's ZipRecruiter.com first to post jobs for free. Well, Kofor Black, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SPYCAST. It was an, an, an incredible conversation. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time today. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it very much. I've come to the museum before, and I can't wait for my grandchildren to get old enough <laughs> to come here and really appreciate all of the great exhibits and experiences that can be had. And I, I also thank your audience for having the, the interest to listen to these kinds of issues, what they think and what they say is very important. And the CIA Memorial Fund? Uh, CIA, yeah. CIA officers. officers. I'm sorry, this is this was off the top of my head. No, I should have brought the... But, no, but if you Google it's CIA Officers Memorial Fund, you can contribute to that. And please think about doing that. Um, it's one of the one of the, the real ways that you can support um, the people that are overseas in harm's way, knowing that no matter what happens, their children will be educated. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.